the good life. That's been our theme for the summer. So picture the good life. Take a minute. Picture the good life. Are you off in the mountains someplace? Are you maybe on the water someplace? For some of you, I know you would be in a garden. Um, some of you might be on a golf course. Some of you might be playing music or listening to music. It's the good life. I mean, some of you might be in a genetics lab where all your experiments work and all your ideas seem like good ideas. I mean, it just, it just does not get any better than that, right? Um, so, the good life. Whatever we picture the good life, we don't think it involves suffering. In fact, we sort of define it as not involving suffering. The good life means we don't suffer. That's kind of what we think. But if we're really leading the good life, the gospel life, the life of a follower of Jesus, it probably will involve suffering. It almost certainly will involve suffering. And sometimes we're going to suffer for things unfairly. We're going to do the right thing, and we're still going to suffer for it. So that's our theme for this morning. And it shouldn't surprise us too much, because Jesus, of course, suffered. He suffered unfairly, and he told his disciples, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And one of the verses that I sort of use as maybe a sort of a personal set of goals or an aspiration or something, Paul writes about his goals. He said, Philippians 3.10, for I want to know him, meaning Jesus. I want to know him. And I was, oh yeah, absolutely. That's the greatest goal of my life is to know Jesus. And the power of his resurrection, that would be amazing to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Okay, well, let's take two out of three. We'll do best two out of three because I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. None of, none of us wants to be suffering. None of us wants to suffer. And, but it will sometimes following Jesus, the good life, will sometimes involve suffering unfairly. Now, just a few, Dan talked about this a few weeks ago. And uh, when he talked about, you know, we're, when we're, we're in a culture that's not a culture that's, that's, that's a foreign culture to us, and we are going to come at odds, and our, our, we are going to be at odds, and we will suffer at times. So you say, well, wait, didn't we already talk about that? Why are we coming back to it? Why are we doing this again? Um, here's why. I figured this out a few years ago, and I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of proud of it, so I'm going to tell it to you. Nobody taught this to me. So when, when you were taught to write, when we taught to write, you organized it as Roman numeral one, you know, A, B, C. Roman numeral two, A, B, C. So you do a topic, we do all the things on the topic, we keep going on to the topic, we do the next topic, and so on. And 
among the New Testament books, Hebrews is pretty much organized that way. Block, block, block. A lot of the writings of Paul are kind of organized that way. But that's not the way Peter writes. Peter writes a very different way. First John is also the same way. Is that he introduces a topic, says something about it, and then he moves on to the next topic, then he moves on maybe to a third topic, and then he circles back to the first topic. So the whole book is a series of introducing things, circling back, circling back, circling back. So it's a spiral. So his organization is more like a, is a spiral. You know, he'll take a topic, talk about it, and come back to it later. He'll do some other things and come back to it later. So in fact, Dan did talk about this a few weeks ago, and it's gonna come up again in, um, in chapter four. We're in chapter three this week. It's gonna come up again, you're gonna hear it again. Um, we had a couple weeks on submission from Dan and from Matt. And that's going to come up again in chapter 5. So he keeps sort of circling these topics. So as you're reading 1 Peter and you're thinking, didn't we already have this? The answer is yes. But he's kind of adding to it each time around. So maybe that helps. It helped me when I was reading it to think about it a little bit. Um, and oh, we haven't had the slide yet. Can we get the first? I'm sorry. <laughs> Can we get the first slide? Yeah, OK. Now, the other thing is that the theme of 1 Peter, and so a few years ago when I was reading 1 Peter, and I was reading it in a translation I hadn't used before, um, not one that I regularly read, and there was a phrase that jumped off the page, and you know how sometimes it'll jump off the page and penetrate right into your soul. And I thought, oh, it happened. It, yeah, there was a phrase. I thought, and then I went back and looked at the translations I was familiar with, and they all had the exact same thing. So it wasn't that particular translation. It was something that I just had never seen before, that I had read it, overlooked it, moved on. And that phrase, which we're going to talk about in just a second, easy to overlook. But to me, it has become one of the defining principles of my life. This is how I think about my life now. This is how I think we think about our, what it means to follow Christ in this world. This is how we, um, it's, to me, it's been a very powerful and clarifying thought of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Here's the phrase. It's in 1 Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. That's the phrase. Elect exiles. Now he goes on and he talks about to where they are. And where they are is, well, we'll get that down in a second. Elect exiles. Let's talk about these two words. You can take either of them, and you can take them into a place that is just not proper. You can overthink them, you can overanalyze them, you can imagine, uh, you can, so don't do that. Just take them as they are, and take them as Peter takes them. So what's the idea of being elect? 
he introduces this chapter two. He gives us probably the most powerful and clear-cut statement about the elect, what, who we are as the elect. Now, the first thing to realize is that we did nothing here. This was not dependent on us at all. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is who we are. So let's talk about these. It's these five terms. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So in other words, both royalty and a priest. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. You're not a people, but now you're the people of God. Every one of these, if you wanted to do um, a personal Bible study, you could take each one of these five phrases and do a study on it. And it would be a really productive study because there's a lot buried in those terms, a lot. But let me just talk about two of them. God's special possession. What does that mean? This is how God sees us. We are each of us his special possession. What does that mean? How does, what do you think about a special possession? Here's an example. My dad collected things. My dad was of the generation that collected coins and stamps and bottles and stuff, right? And when he died, and I collected coins not very seriously, but I had some and worked on it with him. And when he died, I inherited his coin collection. I have his coin collection. I have my own, right? And I don't get it out. I don't look at it much. But I have it, right? And if you come and talk to me about it, I'll say, oh, well, let me show you this one. He, my dad gave me this one when I was 13. How much is it worth? I don't know. He gave it to me when I was 13. It's worth a lot. Or, you know, it's the story behind it. The special possession. You have special possessions. No matter where you are, you have, uh, you might have a lamp that you picked up in your travels someplace. And it's a special possession because you know the story behind it. You know what it took to bring it. To, maybe you know the cost. I know people um, who are gardeners, very serious gardeners, or serious about gardening. You walk in their garden, they'll say, okay, so I got this one at Wells Medina Nursery. It was just a stick at the time, but I thought it would be really nice. I got this one at the nursery at Mount Si. I got this one, you know, and they talk about their plants. Each plant has a story. Each plant has a, this is how it came to be part of my garden. Each plant, now you could look at it and say, that's an orange one, right? Now, I'm a little better than that, but not a lot. But you know what? Every plant has a story. How it came to be part of, this, part of the garden. Every coin has a story. Everything, things in your house, you can think of things in your house and you say, it's got a story. Now let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the, I can look at some of you and I can think of the stories behind some of the things that you've told. How I came, how I came to be part of my collection. That's how God looks at us. He looks at each of us 
And he says, let me tell you the story of how this person came to be part of the family of God. That's, the, that's this phrase, God's special possession. If you look at one another here, what do you see? What we, sh what we might see is every single one here is one of God's special possessions. Someone who has, I don't know where God found you, or where he brought you from, or what the, what the process was, but you've come to be part of the family of God. You are, we are each God's special possession. Have you ever thought of that? See, to me, that's been an incredibly powerful idea. Because, again, it's nothing that I did. It's no, and it's no place for me to say, well, you're not part of it, and I am part of it. That's, that's not, no, it doesn't matter. It's, I am, to think of myself through the eyes of God and say, whoa, really? You know, I'm not, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not really that good. I'm not really that, I'm not really that talented. I'm not really, I, I don't, I've got a, boy. But in God's eyes, I'm a special possession. Each of us is a special possession because of the pathway, the story, what's behind it, how we came to be here. It gives us a value that has nothing to do with, or very little to do, with self-esteem. Self-esteem is us thinking about ourselves. This is God thinking about us. Or about, um, well, about how other people view us so much. Again, that's, you know, that's important. We want to know that. But what, we, what lies at the core is here is how God sees us. And this is only one of the five terms, by the way, so you, should, you, can, you, can do the, you can unpack the other ones. God's special possession. The fifth one is interesting. The fifth one is not a people, but now the people of God. And you would notice that I capitalized it. Not a people. That was, that was intentional. Because what, what Peter's referring to is in the book of Hosea. The prophet Hosea was speaking to the Jews, and at the time, they claimed to be God's people, but they did not live like God's people at all. At all. And Hosea had the wonderful task of naming his, one of his children. You are not my people. That was the kid's name. You are not my people. It wasn't just a description. It was actually a name. It was a title. Right? God, I'm not an Old Testament prophet. Yeah. It was hard enough coming up with names for our kids. Imagine if that was the name we were supposed to give them. Not my people. So that's what Peter's referring to. Is once you were not my people, but now you are the people of God. This is the work of Christ, to take people like us who had no identity. Oh, we had identity as people who live in the Pacific Northwest or people who do this or people who do that. We have those kinds of identities. But as an eternal identity, no. And he gave us an identity. We have an identity. 
This is, the, this is what's buried in that phrase, the elect. The elect. Let's talk about exiles. Exiles are people who are, uh, who are living in a place that is not their home. It's just that simple. They're living in a place that isn't their home. They're not living in their homeland. Um, and the place they're living might be a nice place or not. Might be a very comfortable place or not. Might be, it could be anything, right? When the Jews were taken into exile to Babylon, which is the ex, called the exile, with a capital E, exile. Um, they, were, they lived in Babylon. And you may think, well, what was their life like? Their life was actually not bad. They weren't slaves. They weren't pressed into service. They weren't oppressed. They, weren't, they had the, the government of Babylon looking out for, their, looking out for them, protecting them. So they weren't at war. They, weren't, they were pretty safe. They, were, they had nice water sources because there are songs written by the rivers of Babylon, you know, and so on. Um, they could practice their religion. But no matter how nice it was, they weren't at home. And they knew it. They knew this wasn't their home. The people he writes to, I, I said I was going to come back to it, most of these are people, Jewish groups, who when they went to Babylon, they didn't go back to Jerusalem, they didn't go back to Israel, they went off to other places, to Asia Minor. So they, they were living in exile because they weren't living in, ex in Jerusalem. But more importantly is all of us are living in exile. All followers of Christ are living in exile because this is not our home. This is not our final home. It's a, it's a, it can be an attractive place, or not. It can be a very comfortable place. You may say, I sure hope heaven is just like Iowa. <laughs> or it's just like, you know, it's just like Mount Si, it's just like North Bend. You wouldn't be wrong, I actually don't think that. I think the very best things that we enjoy of living in this place are going to be so much greater. It's going to be a lot greater than living in North Bend. It's going to be a lot greater than living in Iowa, if you want to ever take that phrase. You know, but we're in exile. How do we live in exile? Well, there are different ways. And the Jews did every one of them. And you can imagine every exile group doing this, because you can think of examples as well as I can. There's one group, one way to say it is, we are gonna fight as hard as we can to get out of this, to just, we're gonna try to overthrow this government, overthrow these people, take, our, take charge of our own lives and so on. And we're gonna fight every inch of the way. Another, another way to say it is, well, okay, we'll just be like the rest of it. We'll just be like everybody else. We'll just be like, you know. So they lose their identity. The first way is to say, this is so important that we're going to try to force our actual identity to be accomplished here in this life, on this earth. The second group says, to an effect, eh, doesn't matter. We're just like the rest of everybody else. There are various, there's a spectrum of ways to do this. 
But if you think about what the Jews were told to go into exiles, they were told, buy a house, plant a garden, get married, give your children in marriage. Live like the people around you, but you're not the people around you. There are lines that we have to draw. Think about Daniel. Daniel drew some lines. I can't, he told him, sorry, I can't do that. Sorry, I can't do that. And, and yet, he was respected and honored, and he rose to be a high-ranking official. So did Nehemiah. There were things that Nehemiah said, no, must, must have said, but he became a high-ranking public official. They were part of the, part of the, of the culture. But they were not. They were separate. Think about Esther. She became a queen. You know, if I can say this without getting struck by something, Esther's one of the books that I have no idea why it's in the scriptures, but it is. So we'll take it as inspired by God. And and you know, it doesn't speak to me at all. Um, but nevertheless, you see how it worked. That they were part of the culture, but they were not. They drew a line, they could draw a line and say, this is where it ends. Okay. So, and what that means is that there are gonna be times when we're living in exile and we know this is not our home and we know we have to answer to God and we know our future home is different, that we're gonna come at odds with the society around us or with others. All right, so all of this to say, let's look at the scriptures for today, and I'll just read it, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and we'll start reading here. It's a fairly long passage, so you can just read along with, you can follow along with me. Um, so, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, elect, elect, so that you may inherit a blessing, exile, exile, all right, that you were called, so you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days, this is Psalm 34, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Said Peter with, I don't know what his, what his thought was, because, you know, it's going to come up. Peter was eager to do good, and you know, he was going to be martyred in a few years after this. Um, Peter was evil, eager to do good, and he cut somebody's ear off, which was the wrong approach. Um, you know, he was eager to do good, but people did harm him for his eagerness to be, do good. All right, let me read on. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. I think that's from Isaiah 8. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 
For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. When I first was given this passage or assigned, when, this, when we worked it out and this passage fell to me, I said, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. I haven't suffered. I haven't been, my life hasn't been threatened. I, you know, there are times that maybe I got, you know, maybe things at work were a little more difficult. And, but, you know, I didn't really suffer. There are people who genuinely suffer. There are, there are martyrs. There are, what am I going to say? Because most of us who live in, in the United States or in, in the West in general, you know, our lives are not being threatened because we're Christians. So how can I, how can I speak to, I, I talked to some people, and said, well, how am I going to talk about this passage? And then I read it more closely. And you say, what kind of suffering is Peter talking about? In this passage, the other passage he says other things. He's talking about insults. He's talking about having people lie about you. He's having people, to, they don't believe you. They don't take you seriously. They question your motives. They don't respect you. They slander you. They gossip and whisper about you. You have mud thrown at you, it says in the message. In other words, what he's talking about with suffering is sort of the emotional, verbal suffering. And now it does speak to us, and it speaks to me. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, that's not true. It hurts a lot. It hurts a lot when, when, you're, when you are disbelieved, disrespected, not when you're slandered, when there's a whispering campaign and you can't figure out who's behind this, who's even saying these kinds of things about me. Um, I'll say this, and I want to I want to say it cautiously but accurately. You know, I spent my life working, as you as I've said, in a genetics lab, um, or in a, as a geneticist, not always in the lab. Um, and in academics. For most followers of Christ, that's like, that's like the most hostile territory you could ever occupy. Science and universities, talk about. Oh. The funny thing is, I almost never felt threatened, insulted, slandered by the people, by those, by people like that. Almost never. They probably did. There probably were whispering campaigns that I didn't know about. There probably were times when I could have gotten a promotion, but I didn't, and it went to somebody else or something. It probably, it wasn't, it wasn't, but it wasn't. Like almost every follower of Christ, most of the times this has happened to me have been within the church. by people who were also Christian. The times when I came home and said to Deb, I'm going to give up. It's just too difficult. I can't follow. I can't keep living like this. I can't do this anymore. They were always coming out of a church meeting. 
I don't understand why we do this to one another. I really don't. There are lots of things I don't understand, but this is one I really don't understand. Why do we do this to one another? And the fact that Peter starts this passage off by clearly talking to the body of believers because he's talking about what their life and the body should be like. Now, I can't speak to Cascade Covenant because I have not had that experience here. I would guess that some of you have had it, probably Dan and Angela and other leader, others in leadership have had it. Um, I can't speak to that, but it's not right. We can't do it. We can't propagate it. If you see something on social media and you like it, and you know it, and it's, you don't know that it's true, you may be gossiping, slandering, casting mud at somebody that you don't really know what the story is. That's not right. I don't know why we do it. But to go back to my original theme, I would suggest that it's because we've forgotten that maybe, suggest, suggest, maybe, I'll make this as tentative as I can, that the person we're talking about is one of God's special possessions. We may have forgotten that they are also part of the elect. It may be, or it may be, that we're trying to accomplish things in this life, we're trying to make this life, things in this life, conform to what we want. We're not living in exile. We're not recognizing that this is not our end, that we are going to have frustrations. I'm not sure. It, I know it happens. I've seen it. It's happened to me when I've been in leadership. It's happened to anybody. I think everybody who's been in church leadership has probably experienced it. You don't have to be in much leadership to experience it. And I don't know why. It's just utterly wrong. I want to talk a little bit about verse 15, where he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. When I read this passage and I read this whole section, I think, this is such a contrast. What he's describing here is such a contrast to what we see now in our own culture. First off, it's the people outside who are asking. We're not forcing them to listen to us. I respect the people who have the bullhorn at the stadium and read out scriptures and tell everybody. I mean, if that's what God has called them to do, I don't understand it, but that's all right. But there's no gentleness and respect in that. When I would be, and I was, working with non-believers my entire life, uh, my entire career, I often was asked, why, why do you do this? Why are you this way? Why have you turned this down? Or why is this like this? So I was asked questions for the, the hope that was in me. It wasn't about my stance on political or cultural issues. Those were, yeah, you could agree or disagree with those. 
It was about why do you live the way you do? Why are you investing this way? Why have these your goals? Why is this your hope? And, and I would try to always answer with gentleness and respect. Gentleness is not part of my nature. Gentleness is not, there's not a single person in the world who's ever said I was gentle, ever. They're probably sitting next to the person who says I was patient. They don't exist, right? <laughs> but this is the, but respect, yes. Because this, we are representing Christ in a culture that doesn't really understand what it's like. They have preconceptions. We've presented images that are often damaging to what, being, what it's like to be a follower of Christ. So the questions are not about political and cultural things. They're about the hope that we have. That, in fact, we're living out this hope. We're living in exile, but recognizing that this is not our final home. And always with gentleness and respect. So how does he wrap this up? So what do we do in these situations? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. That we are going to suffer unfairly. We're going to be, we're gonna, it's going to be, your hope is not physical. You hope it doesn't threaten your life or your livelihood, but it's definitely going to be verbal. How does Peter say we should respond? Next slide. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter points again to our example of Christ. And this is an example of the, this is how he ends each of the sections on suffering. Each time, in chapter 2, he says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. In chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Chapter 4 again, Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So he keeps spiraling back. And every time he talks about suffering, he talks about the example of Christ. So when we sing or say or listen to, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than, I'm going to forget some of the lyrics. Um, Something else. That's the song Jen, Jen played for the offertory. Yeah. I do want to know him. I do want to know the power of his resurrection. And I, I, I'll accept the fellowship of his sufferings because that's all part of the same parcel. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given us this example that's so far beyond anything that we experience. What we experience is painful and difficult and puzzling. We don't understand. And yet you suffered all of that and far much, far beyond. 
so that we could be your special possessions, so we could have an identity, so we could be a people who were once not a people. I praise you, Lord, for this. Help us to be faithful. Help us to live as people of hope. In the name of Christ, amen.